Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Shobna Xavier. In each new episode, we engage with the author of a new book in Islamic Studies. In today's episode, we are speaking to Cyrus Ali Zagar, the author of The Polished Mirror, Storytelling and the Pursuit of Virtue in Islamic Philosophy and Sufism. In his book, Zagar explores how the study of good character and the pursuit of perfection or virtue ethics is part of a broader discursive network that included Islamic jurisprudence, theology, philosophy, and mysticism. Using the metaphor of the polished mirror and the tradition of storytelling shared by Islamic philosophers and Sufis, Zagar frames virtue ethics not as a fixed notion, but as part of a network that broadly engages ideal positive character traits. Each chapter of the book focuses on various philosophers or Sufis from the years 900 to 1300. Each of these figures variously framed ethics through sacred revelation and prophetic tradition, all the while incorporating rationality and or traditions of exemplary saint figures. Despite their differing modes and methodologies, at times their conclusions were similar. For instance, the philosophers such as Avicenna, Ibn and Ibn Tufail, having gleaned from the ancient Greek traditions, amplified traits of friendship and love for the betterment of society, while for some Sufis, the quest for human perfection set them on a path that focused on the cultivation of internal qualities, as seen in the tales of Ansari, Attar, and Munim. The stories told here are provocative, humorous, and truly pedagogical. They help the reader transcend normative notions of ethics, especially as limited to Islamic jurisprudence and positive law, and highlights the complex ways in which philosophers and Sufis were intimately focused on being good and doing good as taught through storytelling. This book is a must for anyone working on Islamic philosophy and Sufism. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Cyrus Ali Zagar. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast to talk about your book, The Polished Mirror, Storytelling and the Pursuit of Virtue in Islamic Philosophy and Sufism. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a tradition in our podcast on New Books in Islamic Studies to ask our guests to share with us some of their intellectual journey and what led to the writing of this particular book. And I wondered if you could do that for us. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, so I think a lot of us, you know, who go into graduate studies, I mean, whether in the humanities or otherwise, but... We, we have these questions and they don't necessarily pose themselves as questions uh, early on in our, you know, academic life when we're undergraduates. But later we realize, oh, that was, you know, that was actually a question that I had and, I, and that field or that discipline addressed it. So for me, I think just very early on, the, the question that I had was about beautiful language. Um, it drew me, it, it, something about it was interesting, especially poetry. So I, I, as an undergraduate, I was a, um, an English major with a Latin minor. And, um, as that developed and I, I became very, very, uh, absorbed in it. And I even considered going to you know graduate school for, for English literature. I ran into the poetry of, uh, Rumi and Ibn al-Farid at that time in translation. And, um, what, what I saw in it, I saw that it addressed these philosophical questions. But again, there was that beautiful language issue that it was doing doing it in a very different way. And it, it reminded me of some of the best, you know, the best material I had seen, you know, Gerard Manley Hopkins, or, you know, even, you know, let's say Shakespeare or um, the modernists or whoever, you know, when they, when, when those philosophical questions come out in literature, there's something about it that, that just drew me in. So, I um, 
I applied to programs mostly thinking I was going to do something like comparative literature, but in a Near Eastern Studies department. But when I was at Berkeley, you know, um, that morphed because I, I became interested in the, the the backdrop of the literature. Um, I became interested in the theory, so theoretical Sufism, and I just spent you know hours just really absorbed in that, you know. And of course, it was a language heavy. It's a Near Eastern Studies program, so it's sort of a language focused program. I um, it became very interested in you know, issues of translation, um, and uh, as I as I became more involved in the theoretical, you know, Sufism uh, uh, issue or those issues, um, which led to my first book, I, the practical part was always there too, you know, and you can't ignore it in, in Sufism, which you know, theory and practice are always wedded together. So, um, I think with this book, it was me. Um, coming back to, I wouldn't say practice, but the theory of practice, you know, ethics, you know, so, um, but in literature, because that it wasn't just what appealed to me, it's something that I saw as something distinctive that Sufism offers in, um, in, in Islamic studies and in the history, in the intellectual history of Islam. That's quite profound because I think as I'm hearing you say that, I, all of the kind of the beauty and the qualities that you're speaking of really resonated with all the examples and chapters that you picked. Um, so thank you for sharing that with you, with us. Um, sure. And I guess maybe I could take a step uh, forward and talk about the main focus, which is virtue ethics. Um, do you want to maybe unpack that for us? Um, and what do you mean by virtue ethics, especially in the context of Islam? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so, you know, as someone who uh, was you know, teaching in a department of religion and um, became familiar with the way ethics uh, is taught, I, I, you know, I looked at the the Islamic tradition, and it's it's different but the same. You know, you'll find many of the same questions in um, Islamic ethics that you'll find in what's called, let's say, Christian ethics um, or Jewish ethics, uh, but especially Christian ethics, um, you'll find many of the same questions that are answered, but they're answered differently and categorized differently. So, I mean, you know, virtue ethics in in Western philosophy and um, especially in the Anglo-American tradition, it's, uh, you know, it's it's very, it's presented often as this alternative to... um, you know, other, you know, post-enlightenment or enlightened ways of, of doing ethics. Um, it's a return to, you know, Greek emphasis on being, being a good person as opposed to judging the act. And um, I thought that was interesting, but I didn't also want to dump that or impose it on the text that I'm working with and I'm interested in because that's not what's going on there. Um you know, even even like uh, works on virtue ethics that that study Aristotle cl- closely. I mean, Aristotle and a lot of the Greek ethicists or people write. You know, whether they're writing about virtue or or even sometimes acts, um, the questions that they're asking aren't necessarily the qu- same questions that my, that my authors, you know, the ones I was working with, were were interested in. So, virtue ethics for them uh, in in the text that I work with is very often about. Um, becoming a good person, not necessarily focusing on the full ramifications of right and wrong and having virtue ethics take the place of all other, you know, types of moral reasoning. So in other words, um, for a, a Sufi who's writing about acquiring virtues and becoming a complete person, um, it might very well be the case, and it often was very well the case, that certain 
moral issues exist within the framework of Sharia, within your legal framework, and they don't have to bother with them and can instead sort of focus more closely on much more minute, um, precise issues. And in philosophy as well, um, for the philosophers, um, very often, uh, you know, they, they, you can tell that there's a sort of freedom there where the, the, the assumption is that society, that society, Muslim society has this sharia and it generally leads to good, good behavior and regulates life. But at the same time, there will be people who want to go above and beyond that. And so, so tahdib al-akhlaq, the, the refinement of, of character traits, um, which is shared by these two traditions and which I'm treating as virtue ethics really deals with something much more precise and, uh, um, and focused. And in some ways uh, it means that I, you know, that I avoid some, you know, sort of big issue discussions that are in other books on virtue ethics. But on the other hand, I think it's true to what the, what the authors are saying. And you really help unpack this in your introduction because you're helping us think about this in the context of the role of um, jurisprudence, you know, positive law in the context of Islam, and then the role that maybe virtue ethics had and how actually far more fluid it was than it was thinking mm-hmm. of, you know, right or wrong, good or bad, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you begin to see a lot of the wisdom literature um, filling in that role as well. You know, it's it's like there's this whole sort of map, this big picture as to how people lived, and um, you know, Sharia was was a part of that, and wisdom literature was a part of that as well, um, dealing with sort of different dimensions of life. Right. And so you have this big task ahead of us and you do kind of a fantastic job in focusing on two components. One is the metaphor of the polished mirror, which I hope we could talk a little bit more about. And then also this idea of storytelling, which I thought was very beautiful. And so can you talk to us about how you pick those elements and how you use the metaphor of the polished mirror and storytelling really to be the pillars to engage with Islamic philosophy and Sufism and virtue ethics? Yeah, so the um, the polished mirror really holds it altogether um it, it in a way it's um it, it's it's a common metaphor in um you know in all these writings it keeps coming up um but i think it comes up for a certain reason you know it's not it, you know i think sometimes people who do intellectual history are very interested in how something got handed down as if it's you know an article i'm more interested in in why I mean, there's a, there's a reason why that appeals, why that, even if it comes from the Neoplatonists or somehow, you know, wherever it comes from, there's a reason why that appeals to all these writers, the idea of the polished mirror. And that's because of the, the outlook that they have on human perfection, which is, you know, Neoplatonic, um, but, but also very, uh, very Islamic, very affected by the, by the Quran and the Hadith as well. And, um, and it's the idea that, that you know, um, becoming whole, um, becoming sort of complete is about um, reducing the traits of selfhood. It's about, it's not, it's, at first, certainly it's about acquiring good traits, but, but um, at a certain point, in fact, at the highest levels and the highest uh, expressions of, of moral being, it, it's about uh, erasing and that's true for the philosophers and the Sufis. And so just as you would polish a mirror to uh, get rid of the grime and get rid of everything other than its, its reflective property, 
um, so too you, you polish the soul so that it can reflect the attributes of, of God or the real uh, or you know it, it, you, the, the intellect ref, reflecting the, the active intellect which uh, you know in, in all these metaphors there's a, there's a pattern there so that's why I thought the polish mirror sort of brings it all together in that way uh, the storytelling element as well I mean that's you'll see uh, there, that's something else where both traditions where the where Muslim philosophers and Sufis and not to speak of them as two separate traditions because there's a, as you as you saw I mean in the book there's a lot there's crossover there's sharing and there's people who fall sort of in ambiguous places in between the two. But there are people with allegiances to one or the other sometimes, um, and they are described as sciences. So, it, but the, the storytelling element does also tie them together and it's something shared that when you'll see often in these texts, when it becomes about teaching, um, especially uh, teaching what you might call self-perfection, the author will resort to some sort of allegory or um a t- tale of a, a, a predecessor, whether it's a you know a, a pious or a, a philosopher or a uh, you know a great saint of the past or a great sheikh of the past. Um, very often, it's storytelling that gets them there. That it's modeled, you know, virtue is modeled in in, in, in with these thinkers. And the stories you do tell are, you know, some very provocative, some are very funny, um, cheeky, um, and, you know, really do get you thinking, how did you go about choosing who to include and who not to include? Because I would imagine that that must have been a difficult process. That's actually a really good question. Yeah, it was a difficult process. And at first, I included too much, to be frank. Um, that was one interesting thing about the book. It, it, it was... Um, you know, my the first when I, when I first completed it was way way over. You know, um, and it and it, it took a lot of cutting to get it to be something that I th- you know that I thought and the, the publisher thought you know that that um, readers could really take to. Uh, so it was hard to cut, but I tried to find common threads and I tried to um, sort of build build an idea a, a concept. So um, you know, from from the brethren of. The first half, the philosopher half, there's a bit of chronology to it, but also it goes from, you know, the basic sort of talking about the humors, we can get to that later, talking about the, you know, the humors to um, the psychology, um, and then to really the sort of most difficult concepts in, in thinking about selfhood and subjectivity in philosophy. And then, and then. The, with with the Sufis, it, the Sufi half, it was also sort of chronological. So that helped me sort of whittle it down a bit. But in terms of stories, um, it, one thing that very much helped is I tried to match the story with the theme of the chapter. So the chapter is, you know, is part of a program where I'm trying to help the reader along to see this big picture. And the story matches it. So if it's if it was about the humors, the story about the animals helps in that way. And if it's about, you know, the intellect included the allegories of Avicenna that have to do, you know, that have to do with intellectual um, completion and that sort of thing. And I wonder if we could get into it. So maybe we'll talk about um, the Islamic um, philosophy section and then we'll get into the Sufism section. And since we won't have time to get into all of it, and nor do we want to divulge, um, is there one particular philosopher um, that you're really kind of taken by or a story that stood out for you? I mean, um, oh, you that's mentioned a-, a few, Avicenna, the brother in purity, um, which one do you think out of the ones that you've included that really spoke to you? Um, that's a fair question. Yeah, that's a very fair question. That's a good question. It's, it, it's, it, it is hard to pick, but I think I can. I mean, I, I can, I, I can definitely say that the one that really has, um, 
from a literary perspective, the, the one that um, when you read it, it's just you, you, it, it strikes you as being so different from everything else. You know, and this happens when you read pre-modern texts that sometimes you come across something and you say, this is, this is to use the, I mean, it's a sort of an old, uh, maybe an overused phrase, but ahead of its time. There's something very um, centuries ahead of its time about the way this story is told, content aside. And that's Ibn Tufayl's Hey Ibn Yaqdan. You know, um, right. there's something very modern about, about the way that story is told. There's some attention to detail, to the to little details about the way Hay grows up on this island and begins to um, realize these universal truths by looking at the sort of particular things on the island that are around him by looking at nature. It, you know, certainly there's something, there's something elements of the story where, the, where if it were a contemporary short story or novel, there'd be a lot more inner dialogue and detail, but I'm amazed at the amount of inner dialogue that goes on. I mean, just this, you know, I'll give you, to give you an example, just the simple fact that um, what starts this whole process is, is really an act of grief for him. So for those who don't know the story, um, Hay ibn Yaqdan um, spontaneously appears uh, on, on, this, on this island. Um, he, he sort of, it's a spontaneous generation. He comes to be. Um, he has no mother or father. There's a version where he does, but uh, in, in either case, he's not raised by a mother or father. I mean, he's from, from infancy onward. So that he's adopted by this doe. And, um, and the deer at one point dies. That's the point when, when he dies in his act of grief and he's, he's trying to bring her back to life. That's, that's the process that begins everything for him. It's really beautiful. Um, it's something about, you know, you can tell that the, the story is doing more than just teaching us philosophy that there's really an attention to literary depth and sympathy. You sympathize with this, with this character, you know, um, it's one of the things that really stuck out to me. Mm, yeah. And it is a beautiful story. And I don't think most people realize how popular that story was for Europeans, you know, right. when this text was first encountered as well, right. Just because of the universal um, universality of kind of that narrative or the, I don't know, thought experiment that some people might think, um, but um, it is quite profound. In the same nature, how about in terms of the Sufis that you engage with? I mean, you engage with Attar, um, Rumi, who's often, you know, immensely popular and sorry. Yeah. Um, are, is there any particular Sufi that um, stuck out for you? Yeah, I would um, say, in terms of- yeah, that one is easy because, um, yeah, because the, it, it really, it was the Rumi story that's that started the book. And it was not just the Rumi story. It was just Rumi that started the book. I mean, I remember reading Rumi, um, you know, sort of way, way back in, in graduate school, we would have these circles, um, where we would, you know, we'd read the text in, in Persian. We'd go around reading in Persian and just discuss it. Um, and I always remember, um, I, I always remember thinking to myself because, you know, it's an academic setting, but I always remember, I remember, I always remember thinking to myself, well, you know, is this really how Rumi is to be read? You know, there's the other extreme where where people just apply it to their lives and strip it of all historical context, and um, and Rumi becomes this. You know, it's been talked about quite a bit, but this uh, living sage, uh, and uh, um, and that's that's fine if that's how you want to read it. But but the other the the other side, uh, the other extreme to. Um, to look at it as a historical artifact. I'm not saying that's what we did exclusively, but I'm saying that's, that's the way it's done, right? To look at it as some historical artifact or to try to um, 
just try to just build, let's say, some sort of uh, whether theory out of it. I mean, clearly the people who were reading this were moved by it, and clearly they were trying to improve their lives. So for me, the interesting question was, how did they do that when they were when they were reading it? Um, how are they trying to become a better person through it in that historical context? So if you look at, you know, when on my computer, when I was writing the book, I mean, you have these folders, all of, all of, almost all of the folders are in the Rumi folder. Like it was, it was really at heart about Rumi from the beginning for me to try to get to that chapter 10 and be able to parse out Rumi by looking at all the different strands of thoughts that are there. Because he deals with the he deals with the philosophers even when he, re- he rejects them, and then he's inherited all this this tradition, the, the humoral ethics. These, he's tr- he's inherited the, um, of course, the Sufism. He's hand- he's inherited the Quranic, um, the Quran, the discourses surrounding the Quran and the Hadith and all that. So, for me, the Rumi story really sticks out. I, I, I tried to walk the reader through it, but I realized that it's there's so much there to unpack um, that sometimes I find that that, that chapter would. I, you know, it's probably best if I'm there with with many readers if when they're reading that one. I mean, the un, you know, especially the undergraduates I'm talking about because I did try using this book in an undergraduate classroom, and the, that chapter, if you walk people through it, it you, they begin to see how the it kind of pins together the whole book. It, you know, um, I can tell. And in fact, you know, I, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't tell the story. Maybe sorry. I should have. I don't know. Yeah, go ahead. Tell the story. Yeah. Well, it, I think yeah. So story. briefly. Um, I picked this story because it has so many different working parts, but um, briefly the story goes like this. There's a man uh, who a doctor comes to his house. You know, he's, he's very, very sick. In fact, he doesn't know it, but he's on his deathbed. The doctor knows it. the doctor figures it out. And um, the, the doctor knows there's no cure. So what the doctor says to him, because he wants this old man who's dying to enjoy his last days, he says to him, well, look, basically the only cure you have is just do whatever you want. Enjoy yourself. You have to, if you, if you feel something, do it. If you want to do something, do it. Now he, he takes this very literally, the sick man. And he thinks that his health depends on acting out any urge that he has. So he's walking along the riverbank because it's the first urge he has to go for a nice, pleasant walk. And he sees this Sufi who's making wudu, making the ablutions. And he has this urge to slap him on the back of his neck. So um, that's what he does. He slaps him. The Sufi has the urge to slap him back or to beat him really to a pulp, but holds back and says, no, you know, if I, if I beat him, this man clearly is health wise, not doing too well. So I should, you know, if I, if I beat him, he might die and I'll then, you know, be executed. So let me take him to the judge. He drags the, um, the Sufi drags the sick man to the judge. Um, there's some, you know, the trial and, uh, the judge sees that this man is in really no, the sick man is in no shape financially or, um, in terms of his health, uh, to be punished. So he says, well, why don't you just give him, you know, what you have? I think he had six, he had six dirhams if I remember correctly. And he says, why don't you just give this Sufi three? And that's when the man says, well, if it's so cheap, he had the urge to slap the judge. He says, if it's, if, if it's that cheap to slap someone here and he slaps the judge as well on the back of the neck and says, you can have the other three because now I'm cured. Um, and then there's a conversation between the two. So it, I mean, on its surface, it reads like a, as if it's just like a joke almost, but there's a lot of working parts to it. As I said, yeah, there's a lot, there are so many little digressions and discussions within that, um, within that tale. 
and really, I mean, in that in that discussion, you really highlight this idea of justice, right? Because that becomes very, very important and is a theme that's seen throughout both, you know, in some ways for the philosophers, but also for, for Sufis, right? right? Um, yeah, exactly. And you see in the story how justice is determined in terms of one's particular situation. It's It depends on notions of virtue. Um, justice isn't black or white in the story because the judge's justice is so complex and then it becomes even more nuanced when he explains it, um, why he did what he did and how he was motivated. Um, so yeah, it is very much about justice, but a very different notion of justice than I think those of us who are u- used to, let's say English law or, you know, American law, um, would think of justice as this sort of black and white, same for everyone sort of thing. He takes the, he takes the, um, the sick man's um, particular situation into account when meeting out justice. Um, and and um, moreover, you see how different levels of action depend on one's more um, ethical development in terms of character traits. So um, the Sufi is good and he his his behavior shows his goodness, but the judge is better. And, and it's, it's a much higher standard of uh, you know, of action that, that emanates from his, his inner being. Um, were there themes that were, you know, cross-cutting for both the philosophers that you engaged with and the Sufis, but were there also ideas that I noticed that were not, um, even though they were speaking about perfection uh, of the soul or the heart or good character traits, um, striving towards wholeness, were there things that were different from the philosophers and the Sufis as well, and how they approach maybe ideas of justice? What is good? What is beauty? Yeah, there there definitely are. I mean, um, s- some stand more opposed to one another than others. Like um, Sohrawardi is, of course, um, it's almost at least to me, it's unclear where he stands. I mean, there's arguments on both sides, but there are some, or even Ibn Tofail. You know, there are some who. Um, who and the issue, of course, uh, that I'm alluding to is um, rationality and the degree to which one can determine uh, truth based on on the human intellect on on reason. Um, that's where you see the big divide, I think, between the two of them. And it, it's interesting that it, it it affects so much, but it doesn't affect everything because you can see, um, you know, when it comes to the issue of tahlib al when it comes to character traits and refining character traits. Often it's it's not much of an issue until one gets to the to the higher um, higher level sort of practices, um, and then then uh, in, uh, for Sufis it becomes very much about um, transcending one's one's reasoning processes and um, relying on certain practices, but also um, you know letting go in a sort of very meditative contemplative sense but with the philosophers the, that rationality stays to the high you know to the highest degree especially with someone like Avicenna so i'd say that's a that's one you know difference that you'll notice between them right off the bat i mean and, 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 yeah yeah go ahead, because- sorry because um, I noticed that with the Sufis as well, you tended to, you have to, you know, talk about the states and stations. And there was uh, a little bit more of a, a dance that I noticed um, because the ultimate goal for the Sufis, you know, is a sense of transcendence or even complete negation of the self. Right. So you do have this moment when you're trying to perfect the self and being present, um, but also transcending the self and trying not to exist. Um, whereas with the philosophers, there was the sense of rationality as being ultimate, whereas maybe Sufis would have looked 
to past tradition and looked at exemplary figures or holy figures or saints or prophetic figures to emulate. So I think methodology was at times different, but it was also quite fascinating to me how they were so close in terms of what they valued, right? right? Beauty, justice. Goodness. Yeah. And I don't mean to paint with too broad a brush because you're going to find so many exceptions to this, right. you know, um, on both sides where, um, I mean, they are individuals. So, you know, it, not all Sufis are against the rationalistic approach. And as I said, some of the philo- some of the philosophers in the book call themselves even, you know, um, Sufis. But I think it's a, it's a really interesting difference. The other interesting thing I thought for me was that, you know, you would think that this would mean that Sufism has a pretty simple approach to um, to let's call it, if you want to call it virtue ethics to the self-perfection process. But it's so, as you said, I mean, it's so complex when you get into the states, stations, moments, you get into the, um, the relationship between the heart spirit, um, um, you know, and it's, and defining those things. And then there's the, you know, the sir, you know, and then what, you know, what's the difference between all, all these different things. And you get into the discussions of intentionality. Um, you begin to, to realize that, sure, you know, there's many of these Sufi writers are um, pushing back against, um, you know, a, a lot of rationalistic approaches to, to these things. But at the same time, what they're presenting as a counterpart isn't at all simple. It's a, it's very complicated. You know, you you have to really get into it and and appreciate the terminology and appreciate um, the complexity to to understand it even even somewhat you know understanding it fully i think is 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 a big 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 process if 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 someone has accomplished that but just to even understand it in part sufi psychology if you want to call it that it takes it takes time and i think that's why i really appreciated the diagrams and um images that you had in to kind of Thank guide you. through the reader for those who are visual learners. Yeah. So um, um, that was great, I would say, because there were some times that there was quite abstract and seeing it visually was very helpful. Um, but I think the other thing I really appreciated is that you consistently spoke about kind of networks or clusters of themes as opposed to something that was fixed. And I think that was really, really helpful to think about in terms of a lot of the moving pieces. Right. Going yeah. Yeah, that was a very important part of it. And the, and the more I, I got into it, you know, the more I realized, um, as you said, networks is a very good word. I mean, the more I realized that these these uh, these networks, what they really represent is a whole world of thought. Um, and I'm just trying to, to, to get at one corner of it. But you begin to realize, for example, like with the whole humors, with the four humors issue, which, which is, the, is, I would say, the most salient common thread in in this, in these, among these writers, when it comes to thinking about ethics, I think that is, is thinking about it in terms of the body, in terms of humors. Um, but what you begin to realize is it's not really about the humors. The humors is a part of, is a way of seeing the world as emanational, as, you know, as coming down to these, to these elements. Alchemy is a part of that. You know, you, you can approach these issues right. in terms of alchemy and that's shared between Sufis, philosophers and others who are interested in that worldview. But it's really that you're, you're trying to, when you look at this, as you say, network, you're trying to sort of get a picture uh, of some way of seeing things in the past, you know? Um, I think it's what we're all really trying to do who, who write about the past and authors in the past, you know? Um, I wondered as I was reading as well why, you know, um, the ways in which storytelling and the way in which you frame this work to think about virtue ethics um, or being a good 
um, human being are often not as amplified in the context of Islamic philosophy and Sufism the way that maybe jurisprudence, Islamic law is, you know? Do you think there is a, it's just kind of the historical reality of power and how certain things got more um, um, amplification in terms of what was deemed as authentic versus maybe the traditions that you are trying to kind of bring to light or discuss? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, that's a very good question. I mean, in part, yes, I think um, one of the things that becomes important in academic study, whether for us or you know for a lot of these Islamic scholars, if you want to call them that, um, is to have something that can be debated and argued so that you can win an argument. You know, and I think with a lot of this virtue ethics, these these topics in virtue ethics, not the Anglo-American, the, the Western philosophy way of looking at virtue ethics, not the Greek way of looking at virtue ethics, but a lot of the way th- ways that they wrote about virtue ethics, there was there were some things to argue, but it it wasn't um, it, it wasn't it, you can't really sort of establish yourself as some great mind by writing a book about becoming tahdibul akhlaq. Really, it's it's um, it's not seen in that way. And so part of me wonders, you know, and if, if that wasn't it, you know, I mean, like if, if you're arguing about fiqh, you know, you're, you're arguing about jurisprudence, you know, or your, or theology or philosophy, um, it, it is much easier to sort of establish yourself as a, as a great thinker. Um, but then there's another part to all this, which is, um, which is, you know, our bias as, you know, in the in the Western Academy, the way we read things, we're also very often sort of not interested in the way these texts make someone a better person. You know, um, even if the text says that's what it's been written for, you know, I think that's fascinating. Um, that we, we'll look at the text and and as I said in the beginning, you know, we'll, we'll try to derive some historical or um, social lesson from it or, you know, uh, try to, try to, to make it part of some other theory or argument. And that's fine. And that's good. But, um, there's still this, this element that's very much there. And the author is saying, this is what the book is about, you know? Um, so I think in a way it, it, yes, it was seen as maybe less important because, um, there's less to it in terms of argument, but also at the same time, uh, I wonder if maybe we as as scholars writing in English and, and European languages, if we're not paying as much attention, I mean, there's attention paid, but as much attention because, um, you know, we're, are the, the questions that we're interested in just don't include this right now or haven't. And I think that's why it was so interesting in terms of the conclusions that you presented or some of the thoughts that you raised as you were concluding the book. And it really made me think or probe more about the idea of the applicability or the significance, like the so what of what you presented in terms of virtue ethics, not only for Islamic studies, but also, let's say, European, um, as you're saying, you know, post-enlightenment, humanism, all these other elements that you raise. Um, Why is this important really for us to focus on or at least give more attention to in our modern present context in the midst of everything that's happening? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. So I I think the the why is it important question depends on who's coming, you know, who's coming at it. Um, The the, the person interested in Islamic history, uh, I think, would by studying, um, let's say, Islamic virtue ethics, if we're going to call it that. I mean, if the person uh, who, who studies that, I think, has a different perspective on Islamic intellectual history than the person who doesn't know much about it or do, isn't interested in it. Because when, when um, texts written by Muslim authors for Muslim audiences about Islam are read in isolation, um, Islam can seem to be this way or that. 
but when you include the, the whole picture. And this is one part of the picture, and it's the part that often doesn't come up in um, some of you know in some of these other more more famous or celebrated, let's say, texts and sources. Um, when it doesn't come up, it skews the way you see things. But at the same time, you know, um, uh, I do think that by reading these stories, I mean, you don't ha- by reading the stories and by reading the the philosophy, if you want to call it that, behind it, the philosophies behind them, um, you you actually appreciate uh, what it means to be human on some level uh, that 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 you otherwise don't have. I mean, when you read. Um, Rumi, Attar, Avicenna, you know, Ibn Tofel, the Brethren. I'm not saying that a person would be drawn in to want, to, you know, to their to their practices or to their way of seeing the world in in that way. I'm saying that um, it it helps you understand uh, that there are certain issues uh, that have that that have uh, perennially, you know. Been, been of interest to people if they've been a- answered differently in the past, so be it. But you, the answers themselves have value, and they can make you a better person. I do believe that you're affected by what you by what you read too. I mean, if you uh, read um, these texts, it's difficult not to look at life just a little bit differently, um, or look at the soul uh, just a little bit differently. If you if you buy that, you know, if you if you believe in the concept of soul, and even if you don't. Um, the, uh, because the focus is on virtue and being a good person, um, I think you you can really begin to question your intentions, which is something everyone everyone's interested in. I hope. And this may be a, a question you don't want to answer, but what do you think ultimately then makes a good person? After you've done you know all these studies on these different figures, both philosophers and Sufis, um, do you think there's also some qualities that are um, very very important that you saw? Rep- repeated several times yeah um, no i think that's a fair question (laughs) i would say that if there's one thing i i got sort of in terms of let's say ethics you know after doing all you know all the reading that i did and the writing um if i had to put it into sort of a maxim or something i would say you know being very um scrupulous about yourself being very um looking at your own intentions and your own thought processes and the way you treat others and, and being, for lack of a better word, and being hard on yourself, um, and and adversely being really, really uh, open to others, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Um, that's the model that you see in this book, and I think that's what that's really at the end of the day what what wins. You know, that's what makes you, um, I think, be the kind of person that you'd like. I mean. Um, I, I know it sounds maybe quaint and, and silly, but really when you get down to it, you, you know, I'd say that's one common theme that you see in these texts. Just to conclude, I wondered if uh, you could share with us what your next project is or what you're working on right now. Yeah, so I've, um, I- I'm still interested very much in um, thinking through uh, you know, Sufi texts. So I'm working on um, a monograph about Attar. Um, I'm trying, I'm looking at, you know, Attar's poetry, especially his narrative poetry, but um, his poetry more broadly in terms of um, theories of religion. So I I want to think of his um, writings as writings about religion, even when, um, you know, even when he's describing um, what you might call uh, heretical, uh, you know, forms of religiosity. 
um, metaphorically, there's there's a lot going on there. So I'm thinking about space. I'm thinking about ritual. I'm thinking about um, uh, you know uh, again issues of beauty as I have in the past. Um, but I'm I'm trying to to make it about religion and especially about this phrase religion of love um, in, in Persian mazhab ishq. So that's what I'm working on currently. Great. Thank you so much for um, letting us in on that. Um, and thank you for your time today. We really appreciate it. And I hope to have you back again on New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you. I really appreciate um, speaking with you. Thank you very much.